Our sermon this morning comes from Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. Romans 8 and verse 14. Hear now the word of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we come now this morning to hear from you. We ask that you would do us the great kindness and favor to reveal yourself to us through the proclamation of your word and the work of your spirit. We believe that if you do not come and speak to us, that this will be a waste of our morning, for we need your help. We consider great and glorious truths this morning. Blood-bought promises, gospel promises. Will you please lift our heads and fill our souls with great delight as we consider what you have done for us through our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. A handful of years ago, I was backpacking on Cumberland Island National Seashore. It's an island off the coast of Georgia, a pretty remote island. You have to take a ferry to get out there. It's about 17 miles long, about 5 miles wide. What drew me to Cumberland Island was the exotic wildlife that actually inhabit this island. On the uh, inland side of the island, you can see the manatees. On the coastal side of the island, there, um, Cumberland is known for the large sharks that swim off the coast of that island. In fact, you could catch a shark just by fishing from the shoreline with a rod and reel. In, on the island itself, there's also very interesting animals. It's covered with armadillos and wild boars. And everywhere you look, whenever you come to a water source, you'll find it, the source to be inhabited with alligators. And so that makes it somewhat exciting when you try to get water from one of these freshwater marshes. You have to identify the alligators and where they are before you can just walk right down to the water's edge. Unfortunately, the island's also covered with spiders, which I don't really care for much. I don't know about you, but I actually hiked the entire time with a stick waving in front of me to keep those critters off of me. But what, I, what drew me to Cumberland Island wasn't any of these animals per se. I wanted to see the loggerhead turtle. It's on Cumberland Island that these turtles will actually come ashore in the middle of the night, some weighing as much as a thousand pounds. And there they will dig their nests and under the cover of darkness and lay their eggs. And so that first night I backpacked into the backcountry there on that island. I pitched my tent, set my alarm, and woke up at 2 a.m. to go find one of these turtles. The island was kind of spooky that night. I grabbed a flashlight, not a very bright one, not so as not to not scare the turtles. And there I was hiking through the maritime forest in order to get to the shoreline. A kind of cloud had settled on the island, a very hot and humid day. I was being smacked in the face with Spanish moss as the armadillos rustled in the leaves nearby. I kept flicking spiders off my legs as they climbed up my calves or fell down on my shoulders. I finally found my path to the, to the coastline. You see, in order to get to the coast, you have to make a, a, find a path in between uh, very large sand dunes on Cumberland Island. And I finally found the path and shined my light down that path almost to the coast. And there I saw about 25 to 30 feet down the path a pair of eyes staring right back at me. Now, not, not eyes low to the ground, but these eyes were interesting because they were my height. And they were looking at me. Now, I've been backpacking quite often. It's one of my favorite things to do, and I generally don't get freaked out when I'm in the backcountry by myself. But I was freaking out. I had no idea what this animal was or what it was doing or what it thought of me. But I did tell myself that this animal undoubtedly is more afraid of you, Stephen, than you are of it. And so I, with steel in my spine took three aggressive steps for that animal, knowing as soon as I walked towards it, it would walk away. And so I took those steps, and I was right. The animal did move. However, it did not move away from me. It actually walked towards me. 
And so no longer am I 25 feet away from this mysterious animal, but I'm now about 10 feet away, still unable to identify it in my dim flashlight. And I decided I was wrong. I am certainly more afraid of it than it is of me. (laughs) All of a sudden, the turtles didn't seem that fascinating or interesting to me at all. And I slowly backed away and then run back to my tent like a schoolgirl. And there I slept, or I did not sleep, for the remainder of the night, hoping this thing would not follow me back to camp. Cumberland Island's also interesting for another fact, is that it used to be owned by Andrew Carnegie. In fact, his descendants still own a large portion of this island. There is a ruins of a 59-room Scottish castle that Carnegie built for his wife there on the island, and there are a number of summer homes. And as I was hiking through... Uh, this island, when I wasn't looking for turtles or running away from monsters, I was kind of fantasizing, what would it be like to be a Carnegie? In fact, some of them were even vacationing in their homes with their yachts off the shore or their private planes on their private runways. And I thought, you know, I'm a Carn. That's pretty close. In fact, I'm Scottish as well. Maybe I am a Carnegie and I don't even know it. I wonder what it would be like to live like that. I want, why aren't I in my yacht? Or why did I not fly in my private plane to this island? I don't know. Have, have you ever fantasized what it would be like to be an heir of some wealthy family? To be a Rockefeller or Vanderbilt or even a Duke? Maybe even a child of a king? You ever thought about what it would be like to be the child of, of the richest king in the world who owned everything or the strongest king in the world who could defeat all his enemies single-handedly? Or what would it be like to be the, the son of a, the most generous king who helps people personally and cares for the needy or the most virtuous king in the world who had never done anything wrong or never failed to do anything right? Or what about being a child of the wisest king in the world that billions of people would flock to him to hear from his wisdom or the most loving king in the world, one who had loved like no one else? Well, I wonder what it would be like to be the son of the perfect king that no matter what you thought was good, he did it. What a fantasy. What a dream. Well, friends, I am here to tell you on the authority of God's word, it is no fantasy. It is true. If you are in Christ, you are a child of God. For Scripture tells us, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In fact, His Spirit bears witness Himself with your spirit that you are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I'm delighted this morning to talk to you about what I consider and perhaps the most precious blood-bought gift that has been given to you. I speak not of your justification, your regeneration, your redemption, your sanctification, even your glorification. I speak of your adoption into God's family. J.I. Packer, who wrote the book Knowing God, perhaps... Uh, No other book has impacted me like this book, save Scripture. Once wrote, you can sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian's name for God. What a glorious promise to consider this morning that you and I are God's children. In fact, the Apostle John, I think, was caught up with it when he wrote in 1 John chapter 3, see what kind of love the Father has given unto us that we might be called children of God. Just think about that. You were once living in rebellion in your sin. Friends, we were all enemies against the all-powerful God and we've been saved from his wrath when he put his son to death in our place and he forgave us all our sins and even credited us with righteousness, with law-keeping, 
And then more than that, he put his spirit into our heart and causes us to love the law which we once hate, to obey that which we once could not keep. And even more than that, he does not stop there. He says, I want to be your father. I want you to be my daughter, my son. He could have saved you. He could forgive you. He could even invite you to heaven and still not invite you into his home. And yet he has done even this for you and I. I think if we truly consider it, we would perhaps shake our head in disbelief. This is too good to be true. Maybe we laugh out loud. This cannot possibly be true. I mean, I'd be content to be a slave of God, wouldn't you? I mean, just to think of the glory of being God's slave, to go from his enemy to his slave, the most benevolent of masters. Oh, if I could only be the slave to God. Or or to think maybe even a servant of God. Could you imagine what that would be like to go from a rebel to a servant? Would you not leap for joy, the most generous of all bosses, and that you can be his servant? Or even more than that, what about to be a follower of God? To go from a sinner following your own wayward ways to actually being following the one who has all truth? What joy that would be if all we could be is a follower of God or perhaps even a citizen of heaven? Consider that we were once aliens and now we are citizens. We can live forever in that celestial city, live forever in the kingdom of God. Oh, if we could just become citizens of heaven. And yet you know you are more than that. You are not his slave, not simply his servant, not simply a follower. You are not simply a citizen of his kingdom. You are his child. He is your father. In fact, as I wrote this sermon this, this week, I think I spent a whole day smiling. I just can't get over the glory of this. I am God's son. God is my father. I felt like I had to tell someone. I actually opened my office door and shouted to Aaron, my assistant, I'm God's son, and then closed the door, right? <laughs> well, I didn't really do that. I'm so, I wanted to do that. We're still getting to know each other, and I want her to think I'm sane. So, but I really felt like, I thought about it. You're God's son. You're God's daughter. And these scriptures that are set before us unveil to you glorious and unthinkable promises. Let's consider them this morning. We see here, I believe, four truths about being God's children. Number one, God's children are led by the Spirit. Number two, God's children know God as their Father. Number three, God's children love God as their Father. And number four, God's children will inherit all things. As I mentioned, I believe in my prayer already, my goal for us this morning is that we would not simply consider these truths, that we would not simply ponder them, think about them, even find them interesting or fascinating, that God's truths would weigh heavy on our hearts. That's what I want. That God's truths would lift up our spirit, put a spring in our step, put a, some steel in our spine that we may leave here this morning saying, bring it on world, I'm God's child. May God's work, word do this work for us. If you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, I do tell you, you're not, you are not God's child. I think there is some misunderstanding in our culture as to who, whose children God's are, God, whose, whose children God has. But if you are not in Christ, you are not his child according to God's word. But the glorious thing is that you can be. He would adopt you today as we shall see as we consider these truths. May God help us to understand the glory of what we considered this morning. So let's think, first of all, God's children are led by the Spirit of God. You see that here in verse 14, don't you? For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I think what Paul here is explaining is how we can determine if we are actually God's children, if God is our Father. This is, verse 14 seems to be a spiritual paternity test. That if we are God's children, we will be led by God's spirit. Now, I want to be very clear here with what I think Paul means when he says the spirit leads us. Because quite often, this verse, Romans 8, 14, is taken out of context to communicate that the spirit leads us in, in every decision that we make. And so we may say, you know, God told me to order the chicken and not the, the beef. Or, or God, God told me to wear khakis today. Or led me to wear khakis and not, not jeans. I don't think that's what this scripture means here. 
In fact, I don't even think it means that the Spirit leads us in the major decisions in our life, that God told me to marry Sally and not Jane, or God told me to go to Patrick Henry College and not Duke, or God told me to pastor Hamilton Baptist Church and not stay at Drake's Branch Baptist Church. I don't think that's the leadership in which um, the, the Scripture speaks of. Now, I hope God leads us in those decisions. I believe He does, but I don't believe Romans 8 and 4, verse 14 teaches that. I think there's an entirely different kind of leadership that he speaks of. The reason I believe this is the very first word in verse 14. You see this? For, he says, for all God's, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. See, he's linking verse 14 with what he just previously said in verse 13. And he said here, according to verse 13, if you remember, for if we live according to flesh, we will die. But if by the Spirit you put the death, the deeds of the body, you will live for... All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And so the leadership that he refers to here in verse 14 is when the Spirit actually leads us to fight against the sin in our life. If we, by the Spirit, put the death, the deeds of the body, we will live because for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. He puts the Spirit in our life, the indwelling Spirit of God, to help us fight against sin. He will guide us in this work. He will lead us in this work if we are willing to follow him. I believe the Spirit leads us against our sin in in many different ways. But one way that I believe he does is by making sin personal. That when we sin, the Spirit's ministry in us is to communicate that this isn't something, some rebellion against some impersonal law, but it actually is a rejection of God as our Father. I believe the Spirit communicates this to us when we sin. Perhaps you've read the C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Magician's Nephew, in which this boy Diggory stands before a bell on some mystic, mystical world. And the bell is a, accompanies a warning. It says, if you bring, ring this bell, danger will come. And there Diggory stands before the bell. And the warning does him no good. In fact, the warning just intrigues him. What kind of danger could come from ringing a bell? And the more he thinks about it, the more enticed he is to violate, if you will, the law before him. In fact, at the end, he feels like he can do nothing but strike that bell. But I wonder what would have happened if Diggory's loving father stood before the bell. And if his father said to Diggory, Diggory, do not ring this bell, son. I love you. And if you do, danger and harm shall come upon you. I wonder if it'd be easier to obey the voice of a loving father than it would be to obey some impersonal law. I believe it is. I think this is what the Spirit does. I think this is how He leads us. He communicates to us that when we sin, when we give ourselves over to the deeds of the body, we're not simply just violating some cold law made from some distant ruler, but we are actually rejecting God as our Father. We are saying, I I don't want to follow you, Father. I want to do my own thing. This is why the Spirit is grieved by it. This is why you feel grief, because He lives within you. And he shares his grief with you when you give yourself over to the deeds of the body. On the other hand, when you obey God, do you not feel delight and joy? I think this is Spirit's ministry in your life as well. He feels delight and joy when you follow God, and he communicates that to your heart. The Spirit leads us that we may put the sin to death by giving us a love for our Father. In fact, I think you see this here in verse 15, if you read one verse down. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. You see, what the spirit does is he replaces the fear that we might have in obedience, the fear that we might be punished if we disobey. He says, no, you're not a slave. No, you don't obey God out of fear, but you are his son. You are his daughter, and therefore you obey him because you love him because you long to please him. He douses any idea in our heart that I should follow God because I'm afraid of him. And rather, he stokes the embers of our love for God that we may obey him. He creates this powerful desire within us. He he leads us in this way to obey God simply because God is our father. I am his son, and I want to please him. John Piper puts it this way. He leads us by stirring up family affection. He does not get you to kill sin by making you a slave who acts out of fear, but by making you a son who acts out of affection. And so, Christian, let me remind you this morning that when you sin, 
You are not violating some law. You are not breaking some distant government speed limit. You are actually rebelling against your father. You are saying to him, I will not obey my father in heaven, even though he has blessed me beyond my imagination. The Spirit leads us in this understanding that as sons of God. But that's not all he does. We see, secondly, that children of God know God as their father. Children of God know God as their father. We see this again here in verse 15 as we read one more time. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. There's really two ways, Christians, you you have become God's child. John tells us we become God's child by the new birth. But Paul wants to focus on the fact that we have been adopted. God's adopted you. Now, the more I'm around adoption, the more beautiful it seems to me. You undoubtedly know some people who've, who've adopted children. There are some even in this church. In my previous church, we had a family who adopted five children out of Russian orphanages. And I just think about what that must have been like to go from a position of having no family to love you, no mom to listen to you or to affirm you, assure you, no dad to teach you or protect you, to be now malnourished, impoverished, unhealthy. And then one day, out of nowhere, with love in their eyes, a family walks up to you and chooses you. I want you to be in my home. I want to be your dad, he says. I want to be your mother, she says. And this family goes through all the legal hurdles and the repeated visits around the world and the background checks and the great financial costs to bring this child into their home. And now, for the first time, this child drifts off to sleep hearing whispered prayers over them or a kiss upon their cheek. For the first time, this child, when they wake up in the middle of the night, has a mother to care for them, whether sick or afraid. For the first time, this child has all the food that they need or even want and clothes to wear. For the first time, this child lives as part of a family. For the first time, this child is invited into God's family to worship God and to hear his word taught. For the first time, this child knows what it's like to have their needs lifted up to the throne of heaven in prayer. Adoption is a glorious reality. And it is what has happened to you, Christian. You have been adopted by God. You have received the spirit of adoption by whom you cry, Abba, Father. There was a time in which you were dirty and diseased, alone and afraid. You and I were all orphans by our own choice and by our own uprising. And one day, he arrived at that shanty that we lived in, seeking out a child to be his. And with love in his eyes and at great cost to his son, he said, I'll take this one. I want her to be my daughter. Perhaps there was some protest. Perhaps there was someone to dissuade him. You don't want her. She's full of rebellion. She's cruel. She's unruly. She's selfish. She's sickly. And your father said, no, I will be her daughter. And she will be, and I, I, she will be my daughter and I will be her father. One day he picked you up. He wiped off your grime. He held you in his arms and he covered you with a gown of righteousness. He watches over you when you sleep. And he tells you over and over, you are my daughter. You are my son. And I am your father. And forever shall be. You've been adopted into God's family. God is not your, simply your maker, simply not your savior or redeemer. He is your Father, you are not his slave or simply his servant. You have not been marched into a monastery or forced into a fraternity. You have been adopted into the family of God. And because you know this, you know God as your father. That's what you call him, father. In the Old Testament, this would have been foreign. They would never have referred to God as their father, never dared to do so. Sometimes they call God as a father of Israel. It's kind of like we would say that, that God, that, that George Washington is kind of the father of America. Never would it be your, our father, and certainly you would never call him my father. In fact, by the time Jesus arrived, that distance between God's people and God had grown even wider. In fact, we don't even know how to pronounce the name of God. We say Yahweh or Jehovah, but we're not sure because they never pronounced it for centuries, neither in sermon nor prayer. 
In fact, when Jesus arrived, a scribe who would um, trans, uh, transcribe the, the word of God would actually, when he came to the name of God, he would put down his quill, wash his hand, pick up a special quill to write the name of God. And then once he was done, he would put that down and then he would pick up another quill. Now, I could appreciate the reverence that they have for God, but I lament the distance that this placed them between their maker and here Jesus shows up. Can you imagine the commotion he caused when every single time he referred to God as my father? It was scandalous. It was even blasphemous to them. And not only did Jesus refer to him as his father, he even called him Abba. Abba, Father, using the Aramaic. In Gethsemane, Jesus got on his knees and prayed, didn't he, according to Mark 14, Abba, Father, remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but your will be done. This was so startling, evidently, to the apostles when they heard him call out to God as his Abba Father. When they were translating the Bible into Greek, they actually wrote the Aramaic word Abba to record that this is the word that Jesus used. So what was Jesus saying when he prayed to God as his Abba Father? Well, according to our church fathers, Chrysostom being one of them who grew up speaking Aramaic, Abba means, is the word that a small child will call their father. The Jewish Talmud agrees, saying when a child is weaned, it learns to say Abba and Imam. The closest English equivalent we have is Daddy. Now, I do want you to note that every time the word Abba is mentioned in Scripture three times, it's always coupled with a reverential father. It's always Abba, Father. But here Jesus is on his knees crying out to God, Abba, Father. And now we have received the spirit in our hearts, the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We say the same reference to God as Jesus Christ him. The same word that he uttered on his lips is the word that you and I utter by God's spirit because we know God as our Father. We know him as our Abba. What security is this for us? You just think about the day that we live in. It's such a day of rejection when wives are rejecting husbands and husbands' wives and children parents and parents' children. And, and you, you go to school and, and there's rejection all over the place. You're not either athletic enough or attractive enough or smart enough or cool enough. And everybody has their own group. And we live in a society of rejection. And I believe this creates insecurity and fear and it fills us with anxiety and doubt. And God shows up and says, no, I have chosen you. I have adopted you. You are my son. You are my daughter. And I forevermore shall be. I believe there's great security here, friends. I believe there is great hope and assurance in this security that God will never move on from you. He will never find another he favors. You are forever his child. You know him as your father. But that's not how Paul tells us. We see thirdly that children of God love God as their father. Note verse 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In other words, we know God is our Abba Father, not simply because I'm teaching it to you. Not simply because we study God's word or we've examined the evidence and we've come to this conclusion. We know that God is our Abba Father through the Spirit's testimony. In other words, it's felt within us. We experience this truth. The Spirit himself bears witness with your spirit that you are God's child, that you are his daughter and his son. I think he does this because we're given to doubt. I think we may think it's too good to be true. He couldn't have chosen me. I, I can't be his son. I can't be his daughter. The Spirit comes and says, no, it is true. You are. He is your father. And you may call him that. And when we call out to him, we pray to him, Abba, Father, I think the Spirit comes along and he testifies, that is true. You're right to call him that, he says to our spirit. That is true. It is our words to call him this, but it's the Spirit's witness as he speaks to our spirit saying, you do belong to him. He is your father and you love him as such. He creates that love in our hearts as he bears that testimony to us. Which is what impact this ought to make in our lives. The Puritan writer Thomas Goodwin, I think, beautifully described the impact that it is to have the love of God as our father and that we to love him as our father he pictured a story of a man walking down a path with his son and through the forest and they were walking hand in hand and the son is aware that this man he's holding my hand is my father. I am his son and he loves me. And so he walks with great security. But Goodwin says, imagine all of a sudden the father swoops down and picks up his son and wraps him in his arms and plants a kiss upon his head and says, son, I love you. 
Your father loves you. And then he puts him back down, grabs his hand, and they continue to walk. Go and ask, do you think there's any difference in the child's heart after his father poured out his affection upon him? Well, I think there is. You see, there's a difference in just knowing that God is our father and experiencing his love. The spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are God's children. We experience that love from him. In fact, in verse 15, you, we skipped a word that I just want to draw your attention to. It says, we've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we, here it is, cry, Abba, Father. Not simply say, Abba, Father, or whisper, Abba, Father, but we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit doesn't lead you to doctrinally affirm that God is your father, though I'm sure he does that. Children don't logically affirm the paternity of the man in their house. They experience it. They know it. It is their cry. I've mentioned to you, I trust, that when I come home, there's quite a spectacle. As I open that door and, and the, the carnation erupts in great joy, sometimes there is an impromptu parade in my honor, with complete with musical instruments, as my children cry out, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. Friends, that's not something they planned. It's not something they got down together and said, Listen, there's a man coming home. He happens to be our father. One way we can greet him is to shout to him, Daddy, Daddy. It's not the reasoned outcry. It is the reflex in their heart. They see me and they shout, Daddy, Daddy. The Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are children of God, by whom we not say, by whom we don't state, but by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Only children do this. Sometimes my kids have friends over. And I come home, and their friends don't join the parade. They just try not to get trampled. They they stand back wide-eyed because I'm not their daddy. I mean, you go pick up my, my baby Ezekiel from the nursery, and you'll hear a cry. Well, not the kind you want. It will not be daddy, daddy, daddy. That is a child's cry. You're a child of God. The Spirit bears witness with your spirit that it is true. And therefore, you cry to him, Abba, Father. He bears that testimony. There's a love there, isn't there? Sometimes in the church, we get afraid of emotion. Right? You've heard, we don't want emotional responses. Friends, I'm here to tell you, I don't know how you believe the gospel without having emotions involved. I certainly can't study this. I can't read this without my heart wanting to leap out of my chest in the joy of the thought that I am God's son and he is my father. Now, I understand we don't want to base our faith on emotions, base it on the word of God and the work of Christ. And certainly we don't want to be a roller coaster up and down and just dependent upon the emotions. But let's not check emotions at the door. We cry out to him as his children. We call to him as our Abba. As our Father, I hope you do. I hope the Spirit bears witness with you, your spirit, that you are God's children. John Wesley, the great founder of Methodism, once struggled with this reality. In 1736, he was a young Anglican missionary who left his homeland to come to the colonies to spread the kingdom of God. And there he landed in Savannah, Georgia. And the very next day after his arrival, a Moravian pastor walked up to Wesley. He asked Wesley, have you the witness within yourself? Does the Spirit of God bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God? This is one of the first things out of his mouth. Wesley was floored. I mean, he just left his homeland, come across the Atlantic to be a missionary for God. He didn't know what to say. He just looked dumbfounded at this man. The man persisted. Do you know Christ, he asked. Wesley responded, I know he's the Savior of the world. True, but has he saved you? Wesley responded, I hope he has died to save me. Do you know it yourself? He asked. Wesley, after a pause, finally said, I do. But later wrote in his journal, I fear they were vain words. It was only after that first missionary trip that Wesley actually received Christ as his savior. It's only after that that he was adopted into God's family and understood that God was his father. Friends, does the Spirit bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God? Do you have the witness within yourself? 
when you pray out to him, Father, does the Spirit amen? That's right. He is your Father. Do you love him as such? I believe all who are children of God have this witness. Sometimes it's not as loud as we like. Certainly we don't want to be passive and sit around and say, Holy Spirit, witness to me. We go to God's word. We consider the gospel. And I believe he is pleased to work in our life through it. You see, the children of God love God as their father. But lastly, let us consider that the children of God will inherit all things. The children of God will inherit all things. Note verse 17. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, if we're God's children, we are therefore God's heirs. And Paul now, lastly, directs our attention to the future privileges of being a son or daughter of God, that we are heirs of God. In fact, we are even co-heirs with Christ, believe it or not. In fact, if God is your father, what does that make Jesus? Well, he makes him your brother. And I don't say that simply by logic. Scripture tells us in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11, he is not ashamed to call you brothers, believe it or not. In fact, he told Magdalene after his resurrection in John 20, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father. Or perhaps we have to look no farther than Romans chapter 8. For you know, verse 29 declares, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Christ is your brother, your older brother. You are co-heir with Christ. You are an heir being adopted into God's family. In fact, the only reason people would adopt in this day in the Roman culture was in order to continue their name, in order to pass on their estate. One uh, man, William Barclay, said the adopted person lost all rights in his old family and gained all the rights as a legitimate son in the new family. He became heir to his new father's estate, even if other sons were afterward born. It did not affect his rights. He was inalienably co-heir with them. We are heirs of God. Now think about that. The, the amount you inherit depends upon the wealth of the one who gives it to you. Right? If you were my heir... You would get a mortgage, some medical bills, a fancy coffee maker, a 94 Dodge, and about 2,000 books. Enjoy. <laughs> One French writer in the Middle Ages said, I owe much, I possess nothing, I give the rest to the poor. I'll tell you, friends, God owes nothing. He possesses everything. And he gives it all to his children. We are his heirs. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2 says Christ is the heir of all things. And you and I are co-heirs with him. All things. That's pretty comprehensive. That's what we get. All things. Do you ever consider what this would be like? Do you ever ponder what it would be like to come into this inheritance? What it would be like to have eternal life? Friends, you, you and I do God a great disservice when we think that our eternal life will consist of uh, a billion years of singing and talking with Moses. But I want to talk with Moses. I'm sure it will be interesting, but I don't want to spend all eternity doing so. See, eternal life is full of activity and a wonder and adventures. We live upon this new redeemed world in which God will create. Wayne Grudem spoke of the eternal life, our inheritance, when he said people may serve God by working at the whole range of investigation and development of the creation by technological, creative, and inventive means. Moreover, since God is infinite and we can never exhaust his greatness, we may expect that for all eternity we will be able to go on learning more about God and about his relationship to his creation. In this way, we will actually be able to continually increase in the knowledge of God. Your eternal life will be full of adventure and activity and great joy and delight, new delights coming to you every day, new and different things forever and ever and ever. The Bible talks about the new homes in which you shall receive, the banquets in which you shall eat, the new bodies which you shall enjoy, which are capable of deeper and fuller and higher joys than you even think possible. And we could unfold on and on about the inheritance in which we will receive. I just want to consider one thing in which God will give you, a little thing called the world. Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7, God speaking to the Messiah says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possessions. 
Well, if we are co-heirs with Christ, that is ours as well. In fact, Jesus said as much in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5 when he said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It will be ours. He will give it to us. I trust we will have a role in managing God's creation in the afterlife, in this eternal life. Jesus over and over promised that his servants would rule in the kingdom to come. This makes sense to me since I'm made in God's image and God is primarily two things, a creator and a ruler. I trust we shall do the same things for all eternity. Randy Alcorn puts it this way. There's not a millimeter of cosmic geography that does not belong to him and by extension to his children, his heirs. Our father has a family business that stretches across the universe. He will entrust the management of it to us. I look forward to that day in which I shall come into my inheritance, this world, along with you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. But friends, that's not the greatest thing we'll inherit. See, we'll not inherit things. We will inherit God himself. In fact, you could read it that way. When he says here in verse 17, heirs of God, some understand that to to be that the thing that we inherit is God himself. And I think we need to keep this in front of us because if all we look forward to is the things in which God will give us one day and not God himself, does that not make us idolaters? I don't want to lift anything above God. He's 10,000 times greater than anything he would ever give me. I will inherit God himself. The Bible says in Romans 5.11, if you remember, we rejoice in God. That's where our joy is found, in God himself. I think this is perhaps hinted at when God brought Israel out of Egypt and gave them the promised land. But there was one tribe that got no land, the priestly tribe of Levi. For he said to them, the Lord is your inheritance. You inherit me, Levi. I am your possessions. I trust it will be the same for us. I trust we shall shout with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire beside you. This is our great hope. When that day when heaven and earth are combined forevermore, Revelation 21 says the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as our God. He is our great inheritance. You and I would do well to cultivate a desire for God himself. If you like his blessings, if you like his gifts, just think how great the giver must be. One day we shall come into that possession provided we suffer with him. You see that here at the end of verse 17? And if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. See, our inheritance, we we don't have it yet, do we? And we're co-heirs with Christ. And I I think if we're going to end up in the same place Jesus ends, we're going to have to walk the same path in which he walked. And it will be a path of suffering. I I find this somewhat strange that Paul just kind of inserts this here. He's just unfolding over and over again the great glories of being adopted into God's family. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he says, by the way, you're going to suffer. I think he wants to remind us that we don't have it yet. Perhaps he wants to help us understand that if we're suffering, and even in light of this great inheritance, it doesn't mean we're not God's children. In fact, it means the exact opposite. There's some teaching out there today. Turn on the television, and they will say, listen, you're an heir of God, you're a child of God, therefore you ought to be driving a Mercedes, and he doesn't want you to suffer. You ought to have a Rolls Royce, you ought to have everything nice, and God doesn't want you to suffer. He's your child. But here, Romans 8, 17, it's the exact opposite. We are God's heirs provided that we suffer. Suffering will be part of this life. Don't believe those lies. This is what we shall endure. Paul understood this. Peter was jailed. John was boiled alive. Stephen was stoned. James was beheaded. Paul suffered mightily. And I trust those to whom Paul wrote to suffered as well. And it's just not persecution that he's speaking of, by the way. Notice verse 18, a text we shall consider next time. For I consider that the suffering, same word, of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. He goes on to talk about the sufferings that we face in this fallen world. The sufferings that we endure may be disease or disappointment. They may be sadness or grief. Anything that will actually lead you to doubt that your father is good and that he loves you. We will suffer these things. In fact, I believe the sufferings help us. I believe they are in our lives to serve us so that we do not put our hope in this world, but in our inheritance to come. This is why Paul says rejoice in sufferings. The suffering produces character and character endurance and endurance hope. Suffering is designed to strengthen hope in your inheritance to come. I tell you, friends, if all my life was ease and bliss, 
comfort and peace. I wouldn't long for heaven. I wouldn't cry out with a psalmist, earth has nothing I desire beside thee. I would cry out, earth has everything I desire. I don't need thee. Suffering designs to redirect our heart to God. I understand the suffering we face is hard, painful, and we rightly weep over them. But we will endure them. We will pass through them. And as we do, our gaze must be fixed on the life to come. That we may declare, I, I think these sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing, no matter how great, to the glory that is to be revealed to us. This was the case for all the saints. They never got their inheritance in this life, whether it be Abraham or Jacob, Moses or Aaron, Rahab or Gideon, Barak or Japheth, David or Samuel. The Bible writes of them and others in Hebrews chapter 11 saying they were tortured, refusing to accept release, Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. They were commended for their faith. Yet, none of them received what was promised. They didn't get it in this life. We get it in the life to come. We will suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It's no different for us. Therefore, friends, I, I appeal to you as we end our time this morning, don't, don't try to amass your fortune here. Don't, don't, don't think that this is the place where you should expect comfort in these. Don't try to pull heaven down to earth. Rather, I entreat you to look to your inheritance. Consider what you one day will gain and you will find these troubles in this life are not worth comparing to what you shall inherit one day. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Christians meditate much on heaven. It will help thee to press on to forget the toil of the way. This veil of tears is but a pathway to a better country. This world of woe is but the stepping stone to a world of bliss. And after death, what cometh? What wonder world will open upon our astonished sight? I wonder, is heaven your hope? Is eternal life your longing? Is your inheritance your great ambition? If it is so, it will enable you to endure well the sufferings of this life. John Newton once imagined a man going to New York to collect an inheritance, a possession of a large estate. He says it was vast and wealthy estate and a huge, with a huge home complete with gardens and a staff of men and women to keep it all. But a mile away from the city, his carriage broke down, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. Brothers and sisters, you are an heir of God. And no matter how steep the road in front of you, no matter how dangerous the path, no matter how tired you grow, your glory is but a mile away if you are children of God. Not everyone is. In our culture, it says God is the father of all people. The universal fatherhood of God is our cultural doctrine. It's simply not true according to Scripture. In fact, the Bible tells us that children, being a child of God, is an immense privilege. It is only given to some. But the glorious thing is that God offers it to all who will believe in him. The Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse 12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I tell you based upon the authority of God's word that God will adopt you into his family this very moment. If you will bow your knee in faith and repentance, believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God who lived a perfect life, who died upon a Roman cross, not to pay for his own sin, but to pay for your sin. Three days later, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and one day he shall come and redeem this earth completely. If you'll place your faith in him, if you will believe in his name, he will save you, and he will bring you into his family, introduce you to his father, who will forevermore be your father. 
Won't you bow your knee to him in faith? Father in heaven, we thank you for your great promises. The glory of these truths. I trust we shall have all eternity to flesh out the majesty of our adoption. You are my Abba. You are our Abba, Father. The creator of all things who spoke and creation leapt into existence. The Holy One whom angels adore. You are our Abba, Father. And your spirit resides within us to testify to our spirit that we are yours and that we love you and that you love us. We rejoice that one day you have seen fit. We who were rebels, we who wanted nothing to do with you, that you and your great power and sovereignty, love and grace have received us and taken hold of us and placed faith in our hearts that we may adore you and love you. And you said, I will be your father. And look, I want you to inherit everything I own, which is all things that we may even inherit you, that one day we shall dwell in your very presence. The dwelling place of our God, our Abba Father, shall be with us and forevermore shall be. Oh, I pray that this truth would be a great foundation for us, that we can walk into a world of trouble in just a moment. Perhaps trouble will greet us at the doorway. Perhaps it will meet us at home. Perhaps we will find it in, in the highways on Monday morning or in the office during lunchtime on Tuesday. It is coming. I pray that we shall face this trouble with these words that Paul has for, given to us, that we consider The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Help us, dear Father in heaven, to set our heart's desire upon the glory that you out of your great grace and mercy shall lay before us one day and shall be ours forevermore. Help us to see it, to gaze upon it, to fix our hearts longing upon it. Oh, we enjoy this world in which you've given us. It is full of many blessings, but let it not be our hope. Let it not be our heaven. Help us to long for a place to come. Help us to walk there with joy in our hearts, a spring in our step and steel in our spine, knowing that we are yours and you are ours and forevermore shall be. And I do pray for my friends here this morning who for some reason, despite the unimaginable offering you lay before them, perhaps you've laid it before them time and again, I will receive you, you say, to their hearts. I will be your father. I will forgive you. I will put my spirit in you. I shall bring you into my celestial city, my heaven forever. And yet they say, no, no, no. Oh, dear God, would you not now show them by your spirit the folly of their ways? Will you show them the lavishness of the promise you offer them? the glory of the gift you would give them and the utter foolishness to reject it. Will you give them repentance? Will you give them faith to trust in you? Even now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.